Welcome back. This week, we're doing things a little bit differently. Eric Krieger and John Sonnet, the hosts of the award-winning Expansive Podcast, have recently been appearing as guests on a variety of other podcasts, and we wanted to bring those conversations to you too. Talu Adebuken hosts a podcast called Dunamis EQ. Just like you, he too is interested in the correlation between emotional intelligence and leadership. And that's why in this episode, you'll hear Eric Kruger dive into the importance of self-awareness, understanding our patterns, our beliefs and triggers, and how to use that knowledge to modulate our interactions with others. This is episode 183 of The Expansive. Here's Tolu hosting his podcast, Dunamis EQ, in conversation with Eric Kruger. Eric, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you. So for the listeners, Eric is a keynote speaker. He's an author. Um, and he's also got quite a history of running businesses, managing businesses. So it's going to be a really, really good episode. So I'm really excited to, to get into it. So Eric, would you mind telling the listeners a bit more about yourself? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you today, but I'm also looking forward to taking you out for steak when you come to Cape Town soon. Yes. <laughs> so... Yeah, let me take you back. I'm trying to think always like how far back do you go? Um, But I'll give you a very brief history and then we can go into whatever you think might be interesting. In 2007, I graduated as a physiotherapist. I did my community service here in 2008, which is like a a mandatory year that we have to do in, in South Africa. And 2009, I went into private practice. And the moment I did that, after four years of studying and one year of community service, I realized I didn't really want to do this. Uh, physio wasn't the thing for me. So I started trying out different businesses, you know, whatever I could find. Became a bit hooked on this idea of building a digital business, having passive income, you know, not, be, not, not having to do anything for that money. So launched directory websites, like tried to copy, you know, Freelancer and Odesk and Elance and all those sites kind of, kind of into the SA context. Uh, none of it worked out but it taught me lots of valuable digital skills. And then around 2015, I started, I got to the point where I was like, I'm so sick and tired of failing. Like I've tried so many different domains, so many different ideas, nothing has worked out. Mm. I'm just going to do something that is for me and and not aimed at at making money. Mm. And that became Better Man, which had this very simple premise, which is how do I go to bed at night a better man than when I woke up that morning. Mm. And all I really wanted to do with this website was to document and showcase my journey. So it was a podcast, it was a blog, I did some videos on it. But the thing that eventually hit was I started a daily email with Mm. the idea of just nudging you along every day. Like, how can we be intentional? My sign-off for that was acting on verba, actions, not words. Yes. And so that blew up. And within a few months, I was sending out 18,000 daily emails. Uh, Out of that, the community started saying, can we do events? And as an entrepreneur, you go, yes, and then you go and figure it out. (laughs) So I was like, sure, I can host events. And and we ended up partnering with, you know, Mont Blanc and Ferrari Fragrances and all these amazing brands. We called it Suit Night. So guys would get up in their suits and we would have whiskey. I want to be part of Better Man. This is amazing. it It was so incredible. And then they said, well, can you do coaching? And I was like, well, I can't, but yes, I'm, I'll go and figure it out. 
So I, I found every book that I could on coaching. I studied all of them, made my own models because I, I always like to make it my own instead of just copying someone else's model. Mm. And that kind of set me on the path to being on stage was like, okay, okay. I actually I want to be back on stage. I want to be speaking for audiences. And the coaching led me to do my master's in business and executive coaching. Okay. As I came out of that, keep in mind, I was still in my physio practice as well. But as I came out of that, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to make the transition. I left the healthcare world for the corporate world. And I started working with senior leaders, uh, running uh, team coaching sessions, workshops, uh, really focusing in on how do we help leaders to adapt and change in modern times. And that's kind of been my focus for the past five years now. I started a company called Modern Breed, which is all about cultivating a modern breed of leaders and teams. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, like one of the hardest parts of this journey has been that I had to leave Better Man behind. So it's no longer in existence. Uh, but the Daily Leader, which is a daily email for men, uh, not, not for men, daily email for leaders, mm. um, has taken its place. So... Mm. I'm still doing that, but just in a different format. So hi highlight reel, that's kind of where I'm at. So acting on Verba, I listened to one of your one of your past episodes and you said that people actually got that tattooed and different things like yeah. that. It sounds like a really committed community. You know, it's something about two things. I, I think when you have a very simple message, it makes it very easy for people to connect to you. And yeah. what could be more simple than I want you to be a better man? Like, like. Yeah. The name was like, it's in the name, you know, and it's, <laughs> you didn't have to do much thinking about what this means. Mm. So I think it connected with people very easily because of the simplicity of it. But mm. then the second part is that when you have a daily email, you know, I was highly, highly engaged with the community. And so what mm. happens is I show up in your inbox every single day. But on top of that, when you reply, I reply. And so I wow. always made a point that if, if a guy reached out to me saying he was having a difficult time or he wanted some advice on something, I always made a point of reaching back out to them. Mm. And then what we had as a sort of an add-on to that was we also had the community on Facebook. So mm. that was also about 18,000 men strong. And so wow. just the interplay between the email newsletter and this community and then the live events, it created something very meaningful for, for men. And then you have this call to action, which is... Mm. Let's stop talking about things and do the things that we say yeah. we're going to do instead. Yeah. And even if you just do that, it elevates you above everyone else immediately because we've, we've really fallen into a society where it's much easier to talk about what we're going to do instead of actually doing yes. it. Yes. So I think it was just a, a very potent call to action for men. Um, mm. And still is. I still have acted on verbal on my bookshelf, like a few of them actually stacked yes. uh, to remind me of that. And then my, my second book that I published, Dangerous, same thing. It's also sitting there, not as a, um, not as a reminder that I wrote the book, but as a reminder of the message, because both yes. those are, are very special to me. So, would you mind talking a little bit about the core messages? So, I understand a little bit about acting on verba, yeah. but also about dangerous. Would you mind talking a little bit about both in terms of the the messages and what you talk about in those books? So, so acting on verba was actually just the compilation of all the best emails that I wrote. Uh, so, wow. from about 2015 to I think 2018-ish, I never missed okay. a day. And we decided to go back, look at what, mm. which emails got the biggest response from, from men. And then we compiled them into a book of about 180 reflections wow. that you can then sit and go through. Okay. Um, and the idea was always it has to be short to the point and then you can just carry on with your day. So it shouldn't get in the way of you taking action. So mm. Acton on Verba, 
didn't really have a narrative to it or a big overarching mm. idea. It was just mm. all of these small nudges to help you be more intentional in how you show up. Mm. Dangerous was slightly different. Uh, Dangerous came from a, a coaching session that I actually had. Mm. So I, I finish my master's. I start working with pretty high-level leaders straight out of the gate. Not because I deserved to, or not because I was competent <laughs> to do that, yeah. but because I built trust with, with Better Man. And so mm. the, the guys mm. who knew me were willing to give me a shot at a high level mm. straight away. Right. Uh, which I'm very grateful for. And it really accelerated my career in, uh, mm. in the coaching and speaking space. But so one of the first CEOs I work with is the CEO of a, a pretty big company. They have about 600 employees. Uh, they're doing a, a huge amount of, of turnover. And I remember sitting in the session with him the day. It was a very interesting session because he had everything going for him. You know, mm. He's a CEO of a big company. Mm. Uh, his team loves him. They are growing. He is in good nick and good health. Yeah. There's nothing that you could look at and go, oh, I feel so sorry for this guy. But yet, when, when I was talking to him, I was like, there's something missing here. You know, mm. I, I'm, I'm just, I feel like you're passive. There's something I'm just not mm. getting from you, like energy that I'm missing. And as we spoke about it, what became kind of clear to both of us is that actually, even though physically things were going well on the outside, mentally, he was stuck in survival mode. And okay. survival mode has three common characteristics for me. So um, I like to just layer this in because I want you to understand, you know, survival mm. mode is something we all go through. Um, it didn't necessarily play out exactly to this extent in his life, but there were elements of it. So the three things that you see when someone is in survival mode is, number one, they become very reactive to their day. This means they go through their day just putting out fires, trying to get to the mm. end of the day, not really mm. being proactive. Number two is that they operate from fear, frustration, and anxiety. Right. When you do this, there are two cognitive distortions that occur. Distortion of probability, distortion of severity. Distortion of probability goes, things are likely to go wrong. And distortion of severity goes, when they go wrong, it's going to be catastrophic. Mm. And so what happens is that during the day, you're busy, your hands are... are, are uh, going all over the place. At night, your hands go, go idle, your mind fires up. You think about all the challenges in your life. You go, oh, it's likely to go wrong. When it's going to go wrong, it's going to be catastrophic. And then that creates more fear, more frustration, more anxiety. And of course, what this leads to is the next morning you wake up and you become even more reactive. Your hands fire up again. You just go, go, go. And all of this brings us to the third thing, which is that when you are in survival mode, the things you do keep you in survival mode. Mm. And that's perhaps the biggest thing that I saw with him is that he wasn't doing anything that's breaking the pattern. It's like, this is survival mode's most potent weapon is that it's invisible to us. We get mm. stuck in it and we don't realize that we are there. Mm. So we spoke about survival mode. He was like, yes, I can, I can feel that I'm in survival mode. I don't know what to do about it. Uh, we left the session not really having concluded anything. And I just thought about what led him there. You know, how did mm. he end up in survival mode? If, if he's yeah. this amazing CEO, everything's mm. going well, everything's going fine. How, do we, how did he end up here? And then one day I was just thinking about this man that I saw in front of me. And I, I was like, how would I describe him? And the only word that popped into my head was harmless. Mm. That he'd like kind of lost his bite and his yeah. fight and his edge. Yes. Like I, I couldn't feel anything. Like where's that fire? Mm. And so on the next coaching session, 
I, I said that to him. I said to him, I think you've become harmless. Mm. And you could see it really hit him hard because I think when right. you come to the realization that you've become harmless, it isn't a great thing to accept. Mm-hmm. But we spoke about it for a while. We unpacked it. And right at the end, I said to him, all right, so we have a decision to make now uh, because we can't leave it here this time. If you are not going to be harmless, then what will you be? And he said, dangerous. Wow. And when he said that, I was like, hey, you know, the, there's yeah. something that's like, it's a, it's a state about just being more bold, fierce mm. about mm. taking on life, taking on risk, moving forward. Mm. Mm. And after, you know, it's interesting when I, when I recount that story, um, I think often you can just feel what I mean, you know, like when you, yes. when you hear that, you can just feel like, yes. okay, I, I understand it, but I wanted to unpack it a bit more for people. And so where we mm. ended up was to say that if you are dangerous, uh, it means that you've become a threat to yes. your threats. Yes. Because there are threats around us all the time. Right. And so mm. that's, that's mm. the, the title of the book, dangerous and then subtitles right. be a threat to your threats. But because when you were talking, I was trying to think about what's the opposite of survival mode. And I was thinking, because you know, people say thrive, don't survive. And that's so I was thinking, mm. is the opposite thriving? But actually, no, the opposite is being dangerous, being yes. aggressive, being assertive. So that's, that's amazing. I would love to get mm. both of those books from you when, mm. when I'm in Coke. Definitely. That'd be, For sure. that'd be amazing. Wow. So when you started transitioning into the coaching and the, you know, exec leadership, what was the most difficult part of that for you? How did you make that transition? Because it's quite different to what what you were doing before. Yeah, without a doubt, the most difficult thing, and it's actually something I've been talking about a bit more recently because I think in times to come, we are all going to experience this a lot, is that when you reinvent yourself, the hardest part of doing that is actually changing people's perception of you. Okay. Because, you know, we get so used to, or people have a, a box that they want to put you into. Mm-hmm. And to get out of that box is very difficult. So mm-hmm. when I go and meet up with friends who knew me as a physio, it's mm-hmm. difficult for them to see me as the guy who works with big organizations and leaders. They, they, mm-hmm. they struggle to make that context switch. Mm-hmm. Um, when I switched from better man to the work I do today, I had the, the reason why I left better man behind was because people couldn't put the two together. When, when, mm-hmm. I was the guy from Better Man. I was the guy who talks about masculinity. Yes. And so I often had, a, f- a few times actually, had companies say to me, okay, but if we bring you in, will you be able to speak to women as well? Mm. And I was like, well, mm. the message is kind of agnostic. You know, the message yeah. goes, it's applicable to everyone. But yeah. in their minds, I had a specific box that I belonged in. And they mm. couldn't take me out of that box and put me into a new box. And so mm. what, what is required is that there's the perseverance that over time people start naturally starting to say, okay, well, I, I can see that you're doing something else and I'm shifting my perspective of you. But actually the most important thing is that as you build a new identity, you mm. build it into a new world. I don't know how to really yes. explain that, but you, like you yes. meet new people and they meet you as this yes. new version That's of you for new, the first yeah. time. Exactly. And so, you know, you kind of reinvent your reality as you go along. But that was the hardest part because you also have to let go of a part of your identity. Um, Eric, the physio was a big part of my identity. Um, Mm. Eric, the guy who ran better man was a very big part of my identity. And and what made that even harder was leaving behind 
what I had built, you know, the community, mm. um, I felt indebted to them and I felt like mm. I was letting them down in the process too. But that's always the thing about reinvention is that it, it has to start with something ending. And that something ending isn't just something material, it is also mm. internal for us, letting go of who we are mm. in that moment. And then you go through this period of the wilderness where things are in turmoil and you haven't quite cleanly made the transition. Like at some point I was kind of living as the physio and the better man guy and the keynote speaker. Yeah. And then you chart your way through the wilderness and then one day you finally get to the space where you enter the new beginning. And that is where your identity really becomes aligned with this new vision or this new person that you are. And you mm. just feel like you are more authentic in how you show up. And that mm. actually took a few years for me. I'd say mm. I'd say about two years from when I wow. left Better Man to... Yes. And I vividly remember stepping on stage the one day and I was like, I belong here. Wow. That was the hardest part. So I think the, the concept that you mentioned of the wilderness is something that a lot of people can identify with. So mm. what would you say are some tips that looking back, you would say would help people to survive that wilderness and that transition period? Yeah. So if you want to go and read more about this, um, William Bridges wrote about the like, life and the transitions. I, I'm not sure. I think that's what the book is called. Okay. Uh, but, but essentially he said that whenever you go through a change, change is this external thing that you see and transition mm. is the internal journey that you have to go on. Mm. And we, we like to obsess about the change component of it, uh, especially mm. in organizations but we don't think about the emotional component or the inner component, which is this process of endings, the wilderness and the new beginning. Mm. The thing to accept about the wilderness is that it's a necessary process. Mm. When I started talking about this a lot was as we entered COVID, obviously, because right. we were all going through major transitions and major changes. Mm. And I just found this model to be so relevant and, in, mm. and comforting in a way. But mm. being sort of in a, in a coaching space and working with high performers, my biggest question was, how do I accelerate this for people? Like, how do we mm. move through mm. this ending, mm. the wilderness in the beginning? Like, how do we just get through it as quickly as possible? And then I realized that's like, that's the stupidest thing to try and do <laughs> because that's not the point. The point isn't speed. The yes. point is to go through it effectively because yes. each of those different areas or, or phases serve a very specific purpose. When you deal with the ending, you are getting closure. Uh, you are saying goodbye. Like it's, mm. it's a necessary part of the process. Mm. When you are in the wilderness, you are reconfiguring your identity. So mm. this is a, a moment of, it's a very important moment of uh, inner reorientation that is happening. And the, the way I always describe it to people is that when you've spoken to someone who just came out of a long-term relationship, you know, uh, initially they, they're obviously dealing with the ending. It's very painful. Um, and then they go into the wilderness. And so what happens is after a little bit of time of them being separated, someone will come up to them and say, uh, listen, are you going to start dating again? And they'll go, no, I'm just finding myself. Mm. And what they are really saying is I'm in the wilderness. I'm trying to figure out who I am. Mm. when I'm separate from this thing that I had before, this thing I just said yes. goodbye to. So just knowing mm. that, you know, means give yourself time. 
just be patient with yourself. Know that in the wilderness, you are trying out new things. You are exploring new paths. Mm. And so what you don't want to do when you are in the wilderness is to sit on your butt and do nothing and sulk. What you want to do is explore, mm. try things, meet mm. people, uh, take up a new activity. It's just like, it's just the process of clarity that has to unfold. But mm. we often think we can think our way into clarity when what we really need is to act our way into clarity. Act. Yeah. And so yeah. by just being on the path, there's no specific point that you can go, oh, okay, like if I just do this, 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 I'm going to hit the new beginnings like in, you know, mm. a few weeks or whatever. You'll wake up one morning and because you've done the work, you'll wake up and you'll go, oh, I, I feel like I belong. I feel like I'm mm. over, I'm ready to start dating, ready to take mm. on the new thing, you know? Mm. Um, but that only comes through time and through engaging in this process. Mm. I, th I think what you said about you can't necessarily think your way through it. You have to move your way through it. I think sometimes when you come to the end of something, you have that sadness where you sometimes can feel like you don't want to do anything. So, for example, a few years ago, I stopped playing semi-professional basketball. And it's a transition of, you know, I'm six foot six. So most people I meet, they're like, oh, do you play basketball? And before it's like, yeah, I'm a semi-pro, blah, 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 blah. And then I had to stop saying that, you know, and then it's like, oh, well, what do I say now? What do I do now? But mm. it was only when I started to move more, to do different things, that then I started to figure out like, okay, like you said, I'm finding myself, who am I now that I don't have this thing? And I think that it's, it's a really intentional decision that you have to make to go out and try new things, to go out and move, because sometimes people can be quite scared of the unknown in terms of what am I going to find in the wilderness? I, mm. I don't know what's out there. Yeah, and, and that's a very good point, which is that the wilderness isn't a... It's not a beautiful forest where the, the sun is out <laughs> and the birds are chirping. It's not that yeah. kind of a wilderness that we're talking about. No. We are talking about a wilderness that's dark and it's yeah. gloomy and you are seeing sort of red eyes in the distance. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it, is, it is scary. It yeah. is the unknown. And that what makes it even worse is that you're doing this on your own to a large extent because mm. only you can recalibrate your identity. Mm. Um, of course, we have people that come with us on the journey that are there to support us, but only mm. you can do the hard work required to mm. come out as a different person on the other side. Yes, yes. And I think that it's so important what comes on the other side. And that's almost like the thing that you can think about is like, on the other side of this, I'm going to be different. On the mm. other side of this, I'm going to be stronger because you might have to fight some of those red-eyed things in the wilderness, you know, deal with some of those demons. And that's exactly, exactly what people should be doing. Mm. I think one of the things I really like, and I can't quite get the phrasing right, from the expansive, from your podcast, is the bit that you talk about at the beginning in terms of helping people to deal with change. Would you mind talking a little bit about what that actual phrasing is and then where that came from and how you guys do that? Um, which specific phrasing are you referring to? So there's something um, in your intro where you're talking about helping people to be more expansive and to yes. deal with and better with change. I can't, I, I don't have the exact framing, but I, I might find it. It's so it funny it because I also don't have it. Um, when, <laughs> that, we when we've done that introduction so many times and I still yeah. don't know that introduction off by heart. We still always okay. read it out. So <laughs> a little bit of behind the scenes what happens with the pod. Um, yeah. Let me quickly see if I can grab it for us. Uh, and then I'll read it and then we can uh, take it from there. 
Yeah. Because it, it really resonates with me because I feel like change management is yep. a huge skill. So we talk about it organizationally, um, but I think as as a person, as a leader, as whatever role you play in life, change management is a massive, massive part of life. And I think that's something we're not necessarily taught as we go through education and different things like that. It's not something we really learn a lot about. Mm. So I have it here for you. So uh, where we explore the frontiers, so the expansive is where we explore the frontiers of personal growth, business innovation and technology. We believe that growth and progress comes from expanding our minds, exploring new mm. possibilities and embracing yes. change. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, look, I think, you know, um, specifically coming from from the expansive, so it's John and I, and we come to the world through looking through different lenses. I have a, a very realistic leadership lens. I think a lot about teams. I think a lot about the practical application of change. Mm. And John has a, he, he's more visionary. He likes to think about big picture, future, where we're going. Um, he's become very involved in sort of the neuro aspect of it. So what does a change look like from, yeah, from a neurological point of view, I guess, uh, very much involved in Joe Dispenza's work and, and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so we come to the world through through different lenses, but we both recognize and understand that ultimately what we are dealing with in all situations is how do we help people to change? Because mm. change isn't just adapting to the world. Change is also, I just want to be better. You know, if mm. I want to improve a skill, I need to mm. be better. If I want to mm. fix something that isn't working in my team, that's change. If mm. I need to mm. adapt to innovation or technology, then that's change. So change mm. is actually, we tend to think of it as, as the big moments, but it's pervasive mm. through all aspects of Everything. our lives. Mm. And so what we try to get people to think about is that change is a skill. It's not something okay. that we uh, just fall into. It's something that you can become good at, mm. um, that you become good at by understanding your, your circuitry. How does your brain respond to change? Uh, but also understanding that you you have so many emotional triggers and so much mm. baggage that you carry with you mm. all the time. Mm. And so the lighter you can move through the world, the easier yes. it is to change. And so dealing with your own stuff helps mm. a lot. Mm. So we, I think we, we ultimately end up pushing accountability and responsibility for your own life a lot. And through mm. that, you know, mm. try to get people to change and, and adapt to the world. I really like that. And, and where you were talking a little bit about triggers. So in the one of your moments, you talked about how triggers turn. If you don't deal with your triggers, they almost turn into moods. If you don't turn into your moods, then there's like this progression of it mm. becoming a really big problem. And it then limiting your emotional intelligence because you can't actually see the things that you need to to be able to adjust. And mm. so I found that really interesting in terms of triggers and change and dealing with things and what change sometimes triggers within you because that's where it really comes apart a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and we all have it. It's all there all the time. The question is to what extent are you aware of it? Yeah. And I recently saw some research that said only 15% of us have a high level of self-awareness. And it's an, it's wow. an astonishing stat to me. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, okay, but actually I see it. Like now, you know, I, I, most of the work I do happens within the team context. Yes. And so I, I often see a leader that is like oblivious to the impact they're having on the team. Or I see a team member that is oblivious to the way that they're treating a team member. I'm like, okay, I can see it. I, I see that, you know, 85% of people are actually not very self-aware. 
And then so often I catch myself like, geez, like you didn't see this thing in your like in your own life and this like thing that you've obviously been doing wrong. I'm like, yeah. I'm part of the 85%. I'm not part of the, I'd like to think I'm part of the 15%. And if, yeah. we, if we don't have that self-awareness, we don't recognize the triggers. And if we don't recognize mm. the triggers, we can't do anything to overcome it. Mm. Um, and mm. like you said, which I, I'm glad that you highlighted it, is that triggers exist both ways that uh, when there's a, a change that occurs in the world, it triggers something in you and you might go, well, I, I don't see the, the need to change. I don't see why mm. I should do that or become that mm. or learn the skill or whatever it may be. Um, but then on the other side of it, once you've changed, it also triggers something in you. And mm. what that does, that like that trigger is, it triggers opportunity and potential yes. and yeah. curiosity. Yes. And so... They exist on both sides of that um, mm. continuum, I guess. Because triggers have a kind of negative association. But I think what you said about sometimes it triggers curiosity or opportunity. There are certain people that trigger competitiveness in a good way. There are certain mm. people who trigger you to be better and to do yeah. better. So I think it's about understanding both sides, the positive and the negative triggers, and being able to lean into the things that will get you to where you want to go, which is the positive triggers. Mm. I think that's that's really interesting. When you talk about self-awareness, what are some of the ways that you help people to be more self-aware? What are some of the things that have been useful mm. um, in getting people there? So when we talk about self-awareness, there are really two ways that you're going to increase your self-awareness. One is through your own practices, and the second is through the people around you. And those are really the only two ways to improve self-awareness. How you do it on your own um, is very much dependent on the practice that you feel you can, you can get to most consistently, because I think that's okay. actually what's needed. You know, It's great when we do a personality test mm. every now and then. You feel like you get this sort of spike of maybe dopamine. Like you just, you just you feel good because it, you feel like, oh, this thing understands me. Like it shows me who I am. But unfortunately, most people do nothing with that um, or they become trapped by it, you know. Mm. Whereas the thing that you really need to do if you want to cultivate self-awareness is you need a practice where you are monitoring the way that you think about the world, the way that you show up in the world very consistently. And so... I think the only real way to do that is that you must have a daily reflective practice. Okay. And what that practice looks like is up to you. It could be some people love journaling. Yeah. Uh, some people like, have you heard of morning pages? Like it's a, you know, you, you write two full pages every morning. Okay. Um, if you go and Google morning pages, you'll actually get more information about the practice itself, but it's all free form. Mm. The way I like to actually approach it is I like people to create a bit of a scorecard for themselves and okay. to say, what do I want to change in the moment? And then have this scorecard where every day you can sit down and ask yourself, on a scale of one to 10, how did I do today? Uh, mm. Did I eat well? Did I, mm. you know, whatever it may be for you, did I uh, treat my partner with compassion or empathy? Did I, uh, whatever, you know. Mm. Uh, but you have this check in with yourself every day. Mm. And because of that, over time, you get to see trends. Mm. But also, you always journal, you add a bit of context to it. So you don't, you don't not just, just going and giving yourself a 7 out of 10. You go 7 out of 10, and this is why I'm giving myself a 7 out of 10. And in that reflection, in that, you know, going debriefing with yourself, you'll be amazed at the insight that you get from it. Mm. Uh, but and at the end of the day, when we do this kind of practice, there's always a cap to it. 
and it's called the self-reflection fallacy uh, or the introspection fallacy, which says that you can only go so deep. Mm. And the reason for that is because you don't know what you don't know. Yes. So I can spend as much time as I want in self in, in all these self-awareness practices. At some point, I'm going to hit a, a dead end. And what I need in order to go further is the input from people around me, people mm. who can see what I can't see. Mm. And it's a very tough thing. You know, uh, I, I was reading a thing this morning from Sam Altman where he said, we need to be truth seekers. And seeking truth in your own life means that you are honest about your behaviors and your thinking, even when you don't mm. like what the answer is to that. And the mm. only way you get that is by allowing the people around you to give you feedback without you getting upset or triggered or um, feeling like lesser now that they've given you some feedback. Mm. So I think you need both. And I, mm. what you on top of that, what you need is a, a very tight feedback loop. So that's why I'm saying make sure that yes. you have a daily feedback loop, which is you reflecting for yourself. And then whatever your, your cadence would be with people around you, just make sure that you are seeking out their input and not shooting it down when they do give it to you. I think that's, that's really important in terms of the I don't know what I don't know for me is like a bit of a mantra for me in life is going into things like you don't know what you don't know. So feedback, openness is so mm. important because otherwise you're going to get nailed by those blind spots because I didn't know that was there. So I think you're so right. There's a limit on how self-reflective you can really be because you're not mm. actually seeing the full picture. You don't see yourself from the outside the way other people see it. So, so yeah. I, really, I really, really like that. So just, just as we close, I know we've talked a lot, I feel like we've talked about a lot of things that kind of build up emotional intelligence, but what would you, what would you say emotional intelligence means to you? The first thing that comes to mind is that quote from Viktor Frankl that says, between stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space lies our greatest power, the power to mm. choose how we respond. And I feel like emotional intelligence is a lot of that. Emotional intelligence is realizing that you have certain patterns, certain beliefs, certain triggers, mm. um, and that what you want to do is modulate that in the way that you interact with others, mm. that you aren't always just off the cuff, that you're not just mm. impulsive, but that mm. you take the time to think about the impact that your words and your behaviors have. Mm. And to realize that on the other side of that conversation is a person who's going through the same thing. Mm. and that their awareness might not be where it's supposed to be, that mm. they might be coming into a situation with not enough information about whatever we're talking about. And so you can be a much better host or a much better, yeah, let's, let's stick to host, like um, creating the space and holding the space. That's actually what I'm looking for, like ho yeah. holding and hosting the space for the conversation. Yeah. Um, if you are the one that's, emotionally just more centered and more calm in the moment. So that's what, you know, when I think of emotional intelligence, mm. um, that's the picture I get in my head mm. is someone who's considered, uh, mm. someone who's slow to become emotional because they realize that those emotions can often taint how we do things. And mm. so they're not at the mercy of their emotions. They are in charge of their emotions. Mm. What does it mean to you? It's a very, I don't ever actually have to answer that question. Um, <laughs> so I think for me, it's, 
It's about how aware am I of my own emotions? How aware am I of the impact that I have on other people? And how do I manage that? So I really like what you said about the space between stimulus and response, because that's where the impact happens, right? So something happens to me. How do I feel about that? Okay, this is how I feel about it. How do I want to communicate that? If I communicate that this way, how does it impact that person? So for me, I think it's being able to quite quickly navigate through that in day-to-day life because it's the little moments that really like kill you know Mm -hmm. is that when i just snap back at somebody because i've not thought it through properly that's what really hurts but i don't always have the time to sit down think it all the way through so how do i start to understand myself more quickly and be able to respond more quickly in the right way is 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 probably what it means to me Mm, love that very well said thank you i i wanted to ask you about um just something that triggered a thought was you said about being calm and considered and things like that and pushback that i often hear about that is that because i'm very like this all the time very like Mm. level and some of it is personality like from when i was a kid teachers would say like you're so relaxed it's like you're on a caribbean island so some (laughs) of that is personality some of that is also learned so i was curious as to how much of that Um, consideration and calmness is personality and are there certain people who you think actually can't do that because they're really fiery personalities yeah i'm not sure if i have a good scientific answer for that Uh, but i i do think that even if you have a fiery personality it's okay and maybe it's also like the distinguishing or having to distinguish between something like being very passionate yes um and fiery and uh, being very enthusiastic and engaged mm. versus disrespectful, you know. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking that calm just means I'm not letting my emotions get the better of me. I, I don't mind if someone is actually highly, you know, um, energized and, yeah. and going at it. But like when the moment you get let your emotions get the better of you, you've lost. Yeah. Because now you've been triggered by something and. Mm most likely you're going to be hurtful. You're going to project your resentment or your traumas or whatever onto people. And then it's no longer a healthy environment. But mm. I don't think it's necessary for you, if you are a highly energized individual, to be sitting there very calm and demeanor all the time. Mm. Um, but but I also do think that there's something, maybe there are times outside of the high energy bursts where that calmness still comes through. You know, you don't have to be on all the time. Mm. I, I keep thinking about this quote I heard a while ago that said, the most powerful person in the room is the one with the calmest breath. Wow. And that hit for me hard. And since mm. I've heard that, I'm always like, how's my breathing, <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it, I, I get that personalities differ, but ultimately... Mm. Uh, as long as you aren't triggered and letting your emotions get the better of you, I think you're still in a good space. I, I really like that distinction because I think so. I come from a sporting background and sometimes like it's quite charged. There's a lot of mm. energy going on. I liked what you said about not being disrespectful, not letting your emotions get the better of you. So I think it's you can absolutely have like a, a more heated discussion and a passionate Definitely. discussion but respectfully and emotions mm. in check. So I really, because everybody can be respectful. Everybody can have their emotions in check. So I, I really like that, that, that mm. distinction between the two. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, um, the best way to look at it. Mm. Mm. Eric, thank you so much for being on yeah, the podcast. Thank you. I, thank you. That was great. 
You're a great host. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. So that means a, a huge amount coming from from you guys as I, I listen to your show. Really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for, for talking us through some of the things in your books as well. Really, really useful. Um, and I'll put some, some sure. links in the show notes for people to connect with you. So yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you.